This week, we continue down the rabbit hole with Earth's Forbidden Secrets. Don't have too much more as far as intros to these episodes. We just really enjoy doing them. And we're going to sit down in the near future and record a couple more. As far as everything goes here at the UTC, the work never stops. Uh, The personal growth work is continuing. And it's a very interesting journey. And I probably will talk somewhat about it. We might go back down that rabbit hole a little bit. Just to see how far we've come and where we are and where we need to be. And with that, I don't have too much more. I feel like I could go on, and you guys know me, I can. And potentially, we may have an unsupervised this week. Podcasting's interesting. Sometimes stuff falls through. Sometimes you help a brother out, and that's probably more important. Not sure about the music. However, it's always good. Make sure you give us a like and a follow and a review on any of the apps that you use to listen to us on. That'd be really awesome. We're on Patreon and Locking the Code. You want to swing a couple of bucks our way, that'd be excellent as well. Facebook, Instagram, it's all there. The chaos continues, I understand that. However, in this time of the Kali Yuga, it's up to us to find peace within the chaos. Thanks very much. Look after yourselves. Be kind, be cool, engage disciplined, and stay safe. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Do you just want to go again? Let's do it. Yeah. Go again. All right. I know you've been here before. No surprises settle the score. I know the darkness deep inside. Reckless rage. again mate lucky number seven lucky number seven lucky number seven chapter four earth's forbidden secrets yeah. welcome back ladies and gentlemen part seven <sighs> how you been mate been good i was excited that's why i rung you yeah because i was like you know what i know we just punched out two on what night was that saturday yeah a couple few days ago now wednesday night we're good to go yeah Let's do another one. Well, it's it's, it's getting juicy. It's fun to do. This you know, is no it is fun to do, and yeah. it's you know it's getting. I'm getting into it now. Yeah, yeah. Getting into the book. Yeah, books getting juicier. Like yeah. the like tonight, the the sections are getting longer. Yeah, There's well, we're off to more Egypt in depth, tonight. More in depth info. Mm. You know, mm. so it's getting. It's, you know, Max is. I'm liking Max's style, man. It's and the good, thing is, good read. I like what I like about it too is, 
we have a collective knowledge now that we can contribute and actually give opinion on because we've done the time. You know what I mean? There's yeah. enough research that's been yeah. done here in the refinery that we can have an opinion. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and then in the 20 years since this has been written, yeah, a lot of things have happened and evolved. And yeah, I didn't get to the, I was listening to uh, one of the other ones. We've got to do the Droper Stones, right? There's a few yes. things we've got to yes. do. I, I, I wanted to put that back on the record because we didn't do anything about it, but we've got to go back to the Droper Stones. Yeah, uh, more in depth on the Dropers. And I think... Uh, that was the Tibetan people, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. The Hans. Yeah. Is yeah. it the Hans? The Hans, and, and it had they, the, the the like the discs that look like records and stuff. That's right. No, it was Asian. It was Chinese? I think. Uh, wasn't anyway. Wood Droper Stones. Nepal. Doesn't really matter. I, I think it's Nepalese. Could be, yeah, it could be. Could yeah, be. I think. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, but uh, look, man. As I say, we're having a good time. We are having a good time, and uh, enjoying doing this. So we're going to start, as usual, now with uh, some con- some contributors. Yeah, some uh, we, articles. Some articles. Some tasty jams tonight. Mm, mm. So I'll start. I'll do the, I'm doing the AI, aren't I? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we flipped the red frog for that. We did. Mm. Oh, is the rocker clock going? Oh, thank you, sir. Hit the rocker clock, mate. Thank you, Patsy. I shall engage the rocket clock. Uh, where are we? Do-do-do. Here we go. Counting down. Oh, no, that's you, mate. That's you. That's, that's not. Uh... Oh, they now they know. You wrecked the surprise. Oh fuck! Where's the window, dude? There it is. <laughs> there it is. Okay. Okay. And the yeah, the reason we look, I like this one anyway, uh, because it's something that we spoke about. I think I don't know. It was one of these episodes we talked about it. We've done a few recently, haven't we? So, but in the last few episodes, we've talked about applying artificial intelligence to translating lost languages yeah you know why wouldn't you do that it seems like it would be pretty well suited to it Mm. or as it turns out they are Uh, so this article mit and google researchers yeah so this is uh this one's brought to us by troy john shane and joseph gave us another wow and i think he just needs to be thanks joseph wow uh appreciate the uh, engagement on the page boys um where are we going? Okay. AI is translating messages of long lost languages. MIT and Google researchers use deep learning to decipher ancient languages. So I think, what's that? That is, that's cuneiform, cuneiform isn't it? Yeah. Sumerian cuneiform. Yeah, I think so. Researchers from, from MIT. Yeah. Researchers from MIT and Google Brain discover how to use deep learning to decipher ancient languages. The technique can be found to used, can be used to read languages that died long ago. The method builds on the ability of machines to quickly compete, complete monotonous tasks. That's the thing. It just takes time. There's about 6,500 to 7,000 languages currently spoken in the world, but that's less than a quarter of all the languages people spoke over the course of human history. That total number is around 31,000, according to some linguistic estimates. Every time a language is lost, so it goes the way, so goes the way, that way of thinking, of relating to the world. The relationships, the poetry of life uniquely described through that language are lost too. But what if you could figure out how to read the dead languages? Researchers from MIT and Google Brain created an AI-based system that can accomplish just that. While languages change, many of the symbols and how the words and characters are distributed stay relatively constant over time. 
Because of that, you could attempt to decode a long-lost language if you understood its relationship to a known progenitor language. The Rosetta Stone that's up on there is exactly that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this insight is what allowed the team, which included, oh, here we go, Jiaming Luau and Regina Barzelay from MIT and Yuan Kao, Kao from AI's lab to use machine learning to decipher the early Greek language Linear B from 1400 BC and a cuneiform. There you go. Ugaritic, early Hebrew. So Hebrew. So we got it right, it was cuneiform, but it was early Hebrew that is also over 3,000 years old. Linear B was cre- previously cracked by a human in 1953. It was deciphered by Michael Aventris. But this was the first time the language was figured out by a machine. The approach used by researchers focused on four key properties related to the context and alignment of the characters to be deciphered. Distributional similarity, monotonic character mapping, structural sparsity, and significant cognate overlap. Picked a good article to start, didn't I? Mm, That'll get the jaw flapping. Exactly, yeah. They trained the AI network to look for these traits, achieving the correct translation of 67.3% of linear B cognates, word of common origin, into their Greek equivalents. What AI can potentially do better in such tasks, according to MIT Technology Review, is that it can simply take a brute force approach that would be too exhausting for humans. They can attempt to translate symbols of an unknown alphabet by quickly testing against symbols from one language after another, running them through everything that is already known. Next for the scientists, perhaps the translation of Linear A, the ancient Greek language that no one has succeeded in deciphering so far. You can check out their paper, Neural Decipherment via Minimum Cost Flow from Ugaritic to Linear B. Uh, You need a better name than that, boys. Uh, Yeah. And there's a, there's a, a video with Norm Chomsky there. Oh, yeah, nice. However, look, yeah, absolutely. The thing is, you take photos of all the Sumerian tablets. There's like 5,000 of those. And we've only deciphered, I don't know, a few hundred, I think. Don't quote me on that. However, um, yeah, you take photos of all of them and go, figure it out. Yeah, man. You know? Exactly. You know, And even if you take the basic translation that we think we've gotten right so far, feed that into it, and it can use that as well, because yeah, with some of the with the Sumerian text, there is some translation of that. One hundred percent. So you'd want to, yeah. You, it could it could possibly piggyback off that. You'd probably run two separate lines. Yeah. Um, one that piggybacks off stuff that humans have already done, then Everyone one that doesn't just use let it, it at yeah, all. Just let it go. Let it do its own thing. Yeah, yeah. Let it do its own thing. Um, and see if you get any deviation. Yeah, and and it would be as you say, you would find monotonic there you go i said it i couldn't say that i could yep. not wrap my mouth around monotonic during the article however there you go i've got it uh yeah the same letters words phrases and you and i know you do a monotonous task sitting in front of a computer screen fuck your eyes glaze over pretty oh, yeah. quickly it's so fucking boring yeah uh, so there is some people out there though I, I have run into a few weird individuals over the years that did enjoy doing that sort of task and i i couldn't quite didn't quite understand them but they were very unique individuals and we need them we need those people mm. automator was uh really good at world of warcraft and he was also really good at data entry yeah because they're basically the same yeah thing. those boys love data entry yeah they love it yeah, yeah, yeah just yeah. fucking yeah and they're good at it and we need them 100 percent. Mm. well especially after the um what's the fucking 
You lost it. Damn it. It was meant to roll off the tongue. It's the battle that happens in June. You know the movie June? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a battle in the history of that, the something jihad. Okay. It's a, yeah, basically, um, humans rebel against the machines. The machines, yeah. And then from then on, they stop using machines for anything. Yeah. Then they, they're already spacefaring. So that then stuffed them up a bit because now they couldn't travel safely at fucking supersonic speeds or right. whatever they are, light speed sort of thing. Yeah. But then they found this magical drug. And the more you take it, it it mutates humans into different fucking things. Yeah, like the original June. I remember that. I haven't seen the new one. Oh, yeah. Well, this is this is like not it's trying to be as original to the books as possible. Just do the best job. Like because so far there was like I think a movie in the eighties and a miniseries, like yeah, a TV yeah. miniseries. Like no one's done a real good job of it. So they're trying to do a better job. I watched the first one the other day. It was pretty interesting. Mm. It was decently done. Yeah, look I my yeah, I mean my dad making me watch the the movie. It goes forever. Yeah. Well this one does too. Yeah. But that's that's good because the books I've got a lot of info in them. But speaking of spacefaring, uh yeah, if, great segue by the way. <laughs> Speaking of spacefaring, thank you sir. Yeah. Moving right along. Pass us a mouse please, dude. Yes, there you go. We're trying something new. We're giving <laughs> giving control. Giving Macca the mouse. All right. Uh, here. Don't need any. For. Yeah. Let's just have a look here. Um all right. Controversy. NASA spacecraft captures old mining machine on Eris asteroid possible oh you see it there in the red circle the 433 eros is a peanut shaped or peanut asteroid and is composed i thought like, <laughs> they were going to say peanut did, shaped again because yeah, that keeps happening yeah. it did it in the last time and is composed of magnesium and iron silicates most common in the inner asteroid belt was discovered on 13th of august 1898 by astronomers carl gustav witt in Berlin and August, Charlois in Germany. In February 2001, the NASA spacecraft near Shoemaker landed on its surface, old mining machine on Eris asteroid. Interesting. Ah, the probe obtained more than 160,000 images and identified more than... 100,000 craters. In this way, the researchers discovered that Eros is a solid object and not a set of debris joined by gravity. Their study is important so that scientists can decide how best to avoid potential impact in the future. The curious thing is that in several of the photographs that were obtained, numerous anomalies appear the NASA, that NASA seems to overlook, considering them simple rocks. Something whose morphology is in is in no way resembles natural structures. That doesn't, yeah. Hello, peanut. Peanut asteroid. And take note of how smooth all of these contours are. Yeah. Yeah. Around here. Yeah. This particular image of Eros taken from the near Shoemaker spacecraft on May the 1st, 2000, at an orbiting altitude of 53 kilometres, shows, according to NASA, a large rectangular rock of 45 metres in diameter. Old mining... Oh, yeah, yeah. right. We get Skipping. it. We get it. Okay. Yeah. 
but is it really a rock or could it be some kind of old mining machine? And look, we looked at this, didn't we? We looked at this and we looked at the video and we classed it as an anomaly. Yes, because it doesn't fit in with the surrounding terrain. No, it's an anomaly. I don't know. The fact you could make it a mining machine is... Yeah, whether you could... You know, it's it's a long jump to call it anything. Yeah, but other than an anomaly, it's an anomaly. But I mean, does it justify looking further into it? Like, yeah, as yeah, in yeah. these guys who are doing all this exploration and shit. Well, how about we try and land on this bugger? Yeah, yeah. Where's that? Can we? <laughs> Why land not go there? have a looksy? Put a little rover on there and go yeah. have a looksy at it. Yeah, a little drone or a rover yeah. or something. I mean, yeah. it might be. It might be there on that asteroid taking samples, you know, thinking about how we could mine it. You know, you know, what would be hilarious is if we landed, go and land on there and like the Rover lander looks like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, what if that's not a mine? What if it's a Rover lander? Yeah, it could be. Could be. Anyway. Daddy's in the wrong place. There you go. Given that the spacecraft data collected from the Eros in December 1998 suggests that it could contain 20 billion kilograms of aluminium or aluminum, sorry, and similar amounts. Do we put an extra I in there? Because we say aluminium. Yeah. But is it a difference between yeah, there's an the ore? Is that the ore? And then we call aluminium the finished product. It's Good possibly. Question. Well, bauxite is what aluminium is initially. Yes, but then when you process bauxite, does it become aluminum, aluminum or aluminium? Because no, but then is there a um, differentiation between the two as far as yeah, yeah? Do they add something, and that's why, and we call it aluminium? Yeah, it could you be know, like an alloy. Yeah, yeah, sort of thing. Mm. Anyway, and similar amounts of metals that are on rare earth, such as gold and platinum. Um, Throw it in the comments below if you've got an explanation for aluminum, by the way, before we go on any further. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Is it not unlikely that the coal that the coal rock is a mining machine that has been used by an advanced alien civilization for the extraction of all these valuable metals? Here is an oh, this is yeah, here is the video below. And that's in that we had a geese at. Yeah. No, that's the second one that's in like Mexican or something. I think it's in Spanish. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yes. This is like, uh, yeah, that's the next one. But you know how these videos work. It skips to the next one. Yeah. Autoplay. Yeah. That's it, mate. That's it. That's, that's it. it. Look, it's an anomaly. And look, all things are possible, right? So is it anomalous? Yes, it is. Is it a mining machine? I think you're, you're trying to um, stretch there, aren't you? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. To give it a name straight away. Yeah. Well, you know, let's just keep an open mind. Mm. Mm. But it's definitely something. Well, mate, they were interesting, mm. but I think we've got something better. Mm. We're off to Egypt, oh. which is cool. Did we thank the people off the second one? Oh, we may not have, actually. We may not have. Good call, mate. Just checking. Good call. Good we call. may may not have. If, I don't know, but if hey, If we didn't, it was Shane, Troy, Andy, and John. Good on you, boys. Thank Thank you very very much. much. All right. Valley of the Kings, back to EFS, uh, part seven. Valley of the Kings, back to Egypt we go. The ruins found 
in the jungles of South America are spectacular enough, but there are a few places in the world that have captured the collective mind of mankind more than the necropolis at Giza in Egypt. For years, many furious debates, debates have raged concerning the construction of the complex, especially the Great Period, and many people have proposed numerous different ideas on the methods that were employed in the task. See uh, Steve's episode. Excuse me. <clears throat> See Steve's episode for a uh, interpretation of that, eh, mate? Uh, theories have been put forward. Yeah, mate. Concerning huge stone blocks <laughs> rolled into place on logs via great earthen ramps, elaborate pulley systems, massive stones transported from far off quarries by river barges, counterweights, sand traps, armies of same doomed to generations of pulling and lifting, and many other theories. Don't forget water cranes as well. Yeah, yeah you know, those barges. Yep. Yeah, I yep. like that idea. I do. That was, yeah, it's, that it's, was one of Steve's it's, that's good Steve, ideas. Man. Yeah, that's Steve's idea. Alien help has been suggested and even levitation. That's an old picture of uh, a Giza complex, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But for all the myriad of ways that have been suggested, everyone can be found to contain flaws and none can yet provide an adequate explanation that accounts for all the variables. Hence, there was a magical spring or a lake that pressurized the thing. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that was, yeah. Uh, there are many ancient stella and paintings that exist depicting almost every conceivable aspect of everyday ancient Egyptian life. But have you ever considered that not one exists that depicts the building of the pyramids or the people or, or of people ever even manhandling massive stone blocks? That's, I don't think that's entirely true. There is some. Uh, ultimately, no one really seems to know who it was done by or how it was done. Not yet. So we go to the Great Pyramid, an old friend. I'll keep going, mate. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I'm good. The Great Pyramid is the largest and most controversial of the three large Giza pyramids. It stands at one side of the three. It's not the one in the middle with the limestone casing still intact near its summit, as many erroneously believe. It is, in fact, the pyramid behind that one, the one that has been completely stripped of its limestone casing and is missing the capstone. The missing capstone is an intriguing mystery all on its own. And just to add to that, while we're up there, have you seen the video that it's been circulating lately with the parasailer. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. then they, there's like some kind of engravings on the top because he flies straight over the top of the yeah, where yeah. the capstone would have been. Yeah. And, and there's some kind of engravings there. There's a few people at this point in time trying to say it's Roman or it's this or it's that, mm. that sort of thing. But I don't know, man. It's just interesting that, yeah, that's something. I don't know because the way media works this day and age, I don't know how old that is. Has it done the rounds before? That's right. You know, further back in the in these yeah, days. Yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, if you talk to Muhammad, he wonders whether they're see none of the pyramids have capstones. So did they have a capstone? Yeah. You know what exactly. I mean? That's the question. You know what I mean? Or was there something else there? Exactly. But there's always seems to be when you look on any time it takes a photo of the top of the pyramid. And you can actually almost see it there too. See, there's like a little aerial in the top there. There's always some sort of aerial thing that's been sitting on top of the Great Pyramid. I don't know. There's always some sort of thing up there that are all the pictures that I've seen. Who put that there? That's a good question. We're not allowed to climb it anymore. No, yeah. but you were for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean. Like, well, I mean, you hear stories about the diggers in World War One and World War Two climbing it. You know what I mean? Or World yeah. War One on their way to Turkey. Yeah. Uh, where are we? 
But before we continue, some facts about the Great Pyramid must be taken into account, if only to answer the question, why all of the debate? So please first consider these rather interesting points. The Great Pyramid is about as high as a 40-story building and contains an estimated 23 million blocks of rectangular limestone, each weighing an average of two and a half tonnes. Although the exact number is still an issue for contention and recent x-rays have revealed there's actually maybe little as half that amount. There's also the, uh, the void to take into account too that they found recently. The blocks are fitted together so precisely that a thin knife blade cannot be inserted between any of them. In its finished state, it was covered with smooth limestone casing stones, limestone casing stones, which created a surface that weathered to harden and become smoother and shinier with age, causing the pyramid to reflect the sun and shine brightly from a distance. Napoleon des described it as a shining like a diamond on the distant horizon. It is said that in those days it was actually visible from Palestine. Its sides rise up from the ground at a uniform 51 degrees and is almost perfectly square and level. So great is its accuracy that no other structure that has been built either before or since is comparable to it. Even those buildings constructed recently using modern laser methods cannot equal the accuracy of this single ancient stone structure. A piece of research just came out from the back of the mind. Didn't we, what, 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 aren't a lot of engineering and architectural designs originally based on the accuracy of the Great Pyramid? I don't know, that, that just came uh, flooding I believe, back. I believe back in the early days of UTC, we had a guest called Kerry Stroh. Yeah, and I believe Kerry actually brought up the fact that when he did his, um, his yeah, he's like the, fitters, yeah, fitters course or whatever it was, uh, one, he was welding course sort of, of thing. Yeah, um, they use well, they do a whole section on how precise, like that, in terms of precise measurement, they yeah. use use that as a basis, sort of thing, to yeah. to not to work off but like as an, as example, an example of precision yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. okay cool i'm glad i'm glad that was a verified so yeah memory. you yeah you pulled that out of the out of the nether regions yeah yeah and you were yeah on the around there somewhere yeah uh even those buildings constructed recently using oh we did that uh, single ancient stone structure the method employed to square and level the base prior to commencing its construction is also a total mystery because to make matters even more difficult a large hump of bedrock exists near the centre of the base of the pyramid, which actually protrudes into the mass of the pyramid itself. And that's probably why they built it there. Mm. This hump, yeah, this hump of protruding bedrock is nowhere near level, which means that a standard four, five, six method of squaring the base could not have been used. Yet the first layer of blocks have been laid directly and fitted perfectly in onto this bedrock base to create a perfectly level second layer. The Great Pyramid is accurately aligned to true north, not magnetic north, which would have been a lot easier, more accurately than any other existing structure built either before or since. Creating various equations using its measurements produce results that give us the distance from the Earth to the Sun, the distance from the Earth to the Moon, the diameter of the Earth, the radius of the Earth at the equator, the length of the solar, sidereal and animalistic years, and the mathematically, mathematical formula of pi thousands of years before it was discovered, just to name a few. See, Steve reckons that none of that, that's just coincidence, which, you know. Yeah, but there's a lot of... The, the thing is, How many coincidence? There's a lot of coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, look, I, it's, you know, it's all interesting. It's all interesting. There's a, not a bad picture there. 
it is if it is indeed a tomb as we are told it is not uh, then the great pyramid has also somehow been constructed in the most difficult way manageable imaginable even to the extent that it would appear the builders were looking for the hardest way possible to build a structure the building the layout of the stone blocks is indeed so remarkable with the blocks fitted together to such a degree of precision and in such an unusual fashion that even the most sophisticated scientifically minded construction teams have not been able to replicate it even a scientific team who tried using laser cut styrofoam and glue it contains so much stone that it could swallow within its structure all of the st paul's cathedral westminster abbey in london st peter's in rome and the cathedrals of florence and milan without even bulging at the sides that's a nice little list of uh, triptych cathedrals there. Go mm. back to uh, triptych echoes to have a learn about that. The symbol, symbology uh, in those churches is very, very interesting. Yeah, triptych echoes. That's a good episode. The sides of the Great Pyramid are not flat. There's actually a slight indentation that runs up the middle of each side, starting in a flat rectangular section in the middle of each side. These indentations were not noticed until the mid-20th century when an aerial photograph was taken of the pyramid. These new points have provided scholars with new points of reference for various measurements, but they also raise some intriguing questions. Remember, the Great Pyramid used to be covered in a polished limestone casing that was flat and smooth, completely obscuring these indentations. So why on earth were they put in there in the first place? And then, after completing such a feat of perfect construction, why then cover them up with casing stones? But did they? Yeah, that's the question. They're so faint, we didn't discover them till the 20th century. Yeah from an aerial photograph that was just taken at the right time of year. Yeah. So did they? Because who who on the ground actually knew? Yeah, could actually see it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I, it just created like a an effect and mm. no one could explain. Well, let's, let's, let's dig out another early UTC theory. If we put the capstone in place, mm-hmm. it would refract light up the pyramid into the capstone and create a beam that, headed into space right if possibly you, yeah 100%. that was an early utc theory that's, yep. that's I remember, going back i remember yep. talking about it yeah yeah yeah. so you know if if the if the capstone was a it's it was you know the one the stories that believe it's like it's a gold thing with a big diamond in it sort of thing could be that yeah could be just pure quartz it could yeah. be yeah just a crystal top could be anything Anyway, there's yeah, there was a number of ways to yeah. refract a lot. I wonder what well, to, like yeah, that concave lens of yeah. the the shiny thing yeah, yeah. could reflect it upwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's weird though. What uh, an idea that popped into my head before when they were saying it was visible from Palestine. Mm. Um, I was thinking like, could it be like a lighthouse? You know what I mean? If you can see it from a distance, yeah, that's uh, um, and that's the beacon homes at thing. certain well at certain times of the year. Yeah, it may reflect off more than just one side. That's true. Yeah, well, and, I think it was send beams out, yeah, yeah, sort of thing, like a star, like Napoleon said. I wonder you know? if anyone's lined those uh, angles up to the solstices. Oh, they definitely have. Mm. They definitely have. It's a mm. mm. uh, where were we? Um, writing. Uh, then the cover page. them up with casing stones. What on earth was the point of such an exercise? However, because the indents are there, we can now measure from one corner to the other, i.e. AB. We can measure from across the bend to all points ADEB. And we can measure from one corner to the top of the flat triangle to the other ACB. Okay, so he's got a, yes. he's got a diagram there. Uh, please note that all measurements are done in pyramid inches and sacred cubits. A pyramid inch is 0.0011 larger than the standard inch. 
while the sacred cubit is 25 pyramid inches. This method of measurement is only found at Giza, the USA, and Stonehenge, and is the same method of measurement that is used and described in the Bible for such things as the two arcs. I wonder if you applied that to, um, yeah, let me think about that. Randall does a good uh, video on YouTube about um, why the American imperial measurement system is important. Yeah. Like because of what it's based off and how much, how it links to a lot of different yes, things. It does. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, delve into that if you want any more detail. Mm. Interestingly, the distance between points A and B is 365.242 sacred cubits, the exact length of a solar year. The distance across the indentation between points is 365.256 cubits, the exact length of a sidereal year. The distance points between ACB is 365.259, the exact time it takes from Earth to return to its perihelion, the animalistic year. See, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. When, this, when a circle is made by using the arc created by the indentation, the circumference of the circle is the same as the circumference of the Earth at the equator. And yet the casing stone were flat. Again, do we, do we know that they were flat? I don't I'm, know. I don't know. Yeah. No, no one's mentioned it. Like he didn't, he didn't bring it up. So I feel like this, the fact that it's not there, mm-hmm. the fact that he's making a point mm-hmm. means... We don't know. We don't know, yeah. Why were these incredibly accurate measurements purposely contained in the stonework beneath them? In the king's chamber, it is a hollowed out stone block. Or is, in the king chamber is a hollowed out stone block rising from the stone of the chamber floor that appears to be fashioned by as yet unknown means, and we are told that where the sarcophagus would have light, would have lay. Because of the placement of the stone blocks, passageways, and hollow spaces above the chamber, the room is extremely resonant causing the entire pyramid to ring like an enormous bell when a hollow st- when this hollow stone block is struck. What purpose does all this serve? Coincidence. Still an impossible feat of engineering by today's standards, the Great Pyramid just stands there elegantly and defiantly before us, an absolute marvel of construction and mathematics, a complete mystery and a true wonder by any measure. So how did it all get there? Who built it? How was it done and why was it built at all? Why on, earth, why on earth go to so much trouble and use such a bizarre and difficult design? And why incorporate such mathematic, scientific and astronomical information into its measurements? The Great Pyramid is commonly believed to be the work of Pharaoh Khufu, also known as Cheops. Construction of the pyramid is said to have taken place during the reign of Khufu, about 4,500 years before present, around 2,500 BC. Whilst, while the Sphinx is thought to have been constructed at a later date, presumably in Khufu's and Khufu's lifetime, therefore the pyramid is presumed to be slightly older than the Sphinx. We are told that the sim- smaller pyramid of the three found at the Giza complex was built by the pharaoh Menkara. These are the theories mostly accepted and indeed are widely taught as fact by Egyptologists in schools throughout the world. Some of the main reasons given for coming to these conclusions and believing the timeline of 2500 BC is correct is follows are as follows there exists in the Giza Valley near to the pyramid a stele that mentions the name of Khufu the pyramid is said to be the final resting place of Khufu although no remains have ever been reported to have been found inside there is also an inscription within the pyramid itself located on a wall in a small antechamber in a roof section above the king's chamber appearing 
in a manner similar to graffiti, which also bears the name Khufu. There was a mummy retrieved from the smaller pyramid in 1837 that was reported to be the remains of Menkara that is also widely believed to validate the theories. But there are serious problems with his reasoning. See, I I think, is it... Um, oh, it's, it's blanked on me now. The, uh, the explorer that put the graffiti in the pyramid, Petrie. Mm. I think it's Petrie. He was the one that found it. And they reckon that he was the one that put it there. Okay. Yeah. When he was up in there having a look around. It's possible. Finding nothing. Blowing shit up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trying to blow stuff up. But yeah, yeah. finding nothing. And then, uh, yeah, he put it in there himself. Hmm. It's interesting, man. Could be. Do you want to take the Sphinx, sir? Let's do it. Take the Sphinx, mate. The Sphinx is interesting. Another old friend, man. I was sort of, I'm sort of having flashbacks of early UTC when we were deep in Egypt. Right. So there's a figure 74 below the Sphinx. Located in the Giza complex close to the Great Pyramid is perhaps the most controversial structure in all Egypt. It is carved directly out of the surrounding stone of the plateau and many large blocks have been excavated around it to clear the area. The removed blocks were later used to build the Sphinx Temple that sits nearby. The Sphinx raises a number of interesting questions that beg for explanations, but for the purpose of this work, the only questions we really need to answer are, who really built it and when was it done? There you go. There's a picture of the the offender. Mm, The Sphinx. There's one there, actually. There it is. That's from Egypt too. Nice. The Sphinx is believed by academics to have been built by Khafre, who was a son of Khufu and to have been constructed around 2450 BC. This is because in between the pores of the Sphinx, there is a stele that bears the inscription, inscription Kaf. The theory is also said to be corroborated by several statues of Khafre that were found in the temple next to the Sphinx and mainly because one of the statues was in the form of a Sphinx. It is also said by many scholars that verification of who built the Sphinx is quite simple as the face depicted on the statue is clearly that of Khafre and that this can be verified by a simple examination of many statues, Mm. busts and carvings of Khafre that still exist today. But there are also serious and very obvious flaws with this theory. As we know, mystery of the Sphinx. May uh, Jonathan West rest in peace, man. Investigations of the facts. Although both of these theories are still presented to us as fact, the evidence we have been presented with to validate them both is flimsy and circumstantial at best. In reality, the theory that Khufu and Khafre were responsible for the responsible for the monuments that are that they were were built (laughs) as elaborate tombs has long been disproved there is an abundant amount of new evidence to suggest otherwise and it is now well known by many scholars that the pharaohs of egypt were in fact not the builders of the Giza complex in truth and contrary to common public belief nothing has ever actually been found in any of them to confirm or even seriously suggest the pyramids were ever tombs in the first place. When examining the Sphinx, we should take into account that the ancient Egyptians 
went to great pains to produce accurate depictions of their rulers, and this can be seen in the various surviving statues we have of them. Many of these statues are quite detailed, even capturing facial expressions and the genuine non-symmetry and subtle variations between one side of the face and the other. If therefore, it therefore seems safe to assume that they would also strive for a certain degree of accuracy when building statues. Using today's face recognition techniques and computer technology, several stark contrasts between the Sphinx and the face we know as Carfrey become very apparent. But any layman can just apply basic geometry to compare the angles of the Sphinx to those of Carfrey. The angles and general shape of the profile is all wrong. At just a glance at the Sphinx, the cheeks are too prominent, the jawbone the wrong shape, the brow too pronounced, and the ears too high. Mm, very simple to see that. And that's that, yeah, Mysteries of the Sphinx. That was, uh, that, I've got a couple of copies of that DVD, eh? Yeah. Yeah, we should watch it one night. We should, definitely. Mm. All right. This can then be confirmed further by observing the number of glaring differences that also become apparent when using the same simple geometry to compare the facial angles in the front views of the two faces. As we can see, the jaw is too wide, the mouth is wrong, the eyes are the wrong shape, and the ears are, yes, those ears. It suffices to say, the two statues simply don't look anything like each other. I mean, sure, there's one head with two eyes, two ears, one mouth, the remnants of a nose, and the same standard Egyptian headdress. But that's where the similarities end. The nose is thought to have been blown off by Napoleon's forces, though this is also heavily debated. What's interesting about the nose thing mm. is it's not just the nose on the Sphinx. There's a series of pictures and hieroglyphs where the nose has been chipped off. Right? There's actually all these oh, paintings okay. and all yep. like all the stuff in that there's other there's it's not just that. There's the nose has been chipped off yep. on other things as well. It's not just the Sphinx. So that's why it's like, yeah, maybe yeah, Napoleon's apparently they used a cannonball. I mean, that's a pretty good shot with the cannonball to blow yeah. a nose off, you know what I mean? Unless I mean, you point blank. I mean, when there's when there's no rules and you've got a large group of men together, yeah, and they have cannons. Yeah. Could it happen? Absolutely. Hundred percent. If I'm there, I'm shooting it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Especially that day and age. You know? But yeah, you can see quite clearly there's Caffrey on the right and the Sphinx on the left, and they're nothing like each other at all. No. The ears of the ears are strange. Mm. Mm. But anyway, that's a good good photo comparison there. Mm. It's a nice comparison. All right. Then there is the Stella bearing the name Cuff standing between the paws of the Sphinx itself. The granite stele was erected to commemorate restoration work that was done on the monument to King Tutmos IV, sometimes, but sometime between 1425 and 1417 BC. That this single syllable of kaf that appears on the stele should give Egyptologists reasons to believe Kafre was the builder is somewhat bizarre because the very same stele also describes the entire Giza necropolis as being a splendid 
place of the first time, which of course associates the whole complex to a far earlier epoch in Egypt's history. There is also another stele at Giza called the Inventory Stele, which mentions Khufu building a temple and also mentions the Great Pyramid as being next to the Sphinx, which also indicates that both the Sphinx and the Pyramid were already there before Khufu's time. Naturally, Egyptologists have branded the Inventory Stele as a forgery because it is contrary to the orthodox theory. I'm just telling a story, mate. It doesn't fit the paradigm. Mm. Though they neglect to indicate who they think may have forged a 4,500-year-old stone stele or why. Bored. Shooting cannons. <laughs> Bored. You know what? <laughs> Going to make up a whole story. We found this thing called agriculture and now I've got too much time, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Idle we... hands do the devil's work. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, the same extraordinary approach has been seen with other stele as well, as in the case of the king list in which the bottom half of the list is said to have been proven to be genuine, the top half yeah. is said to be either a forgery or mythology or mistaken. Yeah, it just there. Yeah, they only got the they only got half of it right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so they and there was the second half. That's right. After they'd had their fun, yeah. they thought they'd get it right. Yeah, they just thought they'd tidy it up. Yeah. Anyway. One of the main anchor points for the theory that Khufu was the builder of the Great Pyramid lies with an inscription bearing his name that was found in a small antechamber within the pyramid that had long been sealed. This inscription was seized upon as proof, but has always been highly suspect and has been now confirmed as a forgery. Yet it is still used to validate the theory. The story of the inscription goes like this. I was wrong with that. In 1837, a man by the name of Colonel Howard Weiss and two companions claimed to have found the remains of the pharaoh Menkara inside the smaller Giza pyramid, thus proving at last who built it. However, the real fact of the matter is that the mummy was a fraud, consisting of a 2,000-year-old coffin and some bones from the Christian era, which had been assembled into a fraudulent discovery. This fact is widely known by scholars and cannot be disputed by anyone, yet it is almost never publicised. The fact that the inscription found inside the antechamber of the Great Pyramid was also found by Colonel Weiss in the same year should immediately give one pause. Yet we find that this fact is absolutely never publicised. Why? The forgery of the inscription was actually has actually now been positively confirmed by the great-grandson of a man who witnessed the actual event. The suspect nature of the inscription was mentioned by the Sumerian scholar Zachariah Sitchin in his book Stairway to Heaven. A reader of, of the book, wow, reader of the book then wrote to Sitchin confirming the forgery which he reported on in a later book entitled the Wars of the Gods and Men, in which he says at the end of 1983, a reader of that book came forward to provide us with family records showing that his great-grandfather, a master mason named, named Humphrey Brewers, who was engaged by Vice to help use gunpowder to blast his way inside the pyramid. Well, we got that part right. Yeah. 
was an eyewitness to the forgery and having objected to the deed, was expelled from the site and forced to leave Egypt altogether. Right. Yeah, be quiet, mate. There's uh, Stella. Just give you the countdown warning, mate. I'm going to do this and then you can you can have a crack. Yeah, for sure, mate. It is, therefore, somewhat strange that still in 2006, any book on the Giza complex you may pick up released by mainstream academia still states that the smaller Giza pyramid was built by the pharaoh Menkara, even though the fraud was exposed almost immediately and is widely known about. It is interesting that smooth-sided square-based pyramids were never part of the ancient Sumerian construction, yet Sitchin also offers us pictorial evidence in the form of 6,000-year-old Mesopotamian clay tablets clearly depicting a smooth-sided square-based pyramid during construction okay. and celebrations after its completion, and one clearly depicting the serpent symbol of the Sumerian god Anki. This presents us with further proof that the monuments were known to the ancient Sumerians of 6,000 years ago and of their far greater antiquity than is currently theorised. There is also documented evidence in 6,000-year-old Sumerian texts which mentioned the construction of an abode called the Enkur, which translates as house that like a mountain is and describes how the structure was eventually abandoned due to a conflict and had its capstone removed. These texts also mention the hurried hacking of an emergency shaft to rescue someone imprisoned inside the Enkur by huge sliding stones, which adequately explains three enigmas of the Great Pyramid all in one text. That's interesting, eh? It is very interesting. Yeah, no worries, mate. Yeah, we're going to swap over because I think we're not going to get out of Egypt tonight. So we're just going to do a bit of a change it up. Uh, clearly, if the pyramid was not known to the well, if the pyramid was not known to the ancient Sumerians as we are told, then they could not possibly be in possession of such an accurate information that is also unique to the structure. There you go. That's interesting. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, it's that's a bit of a okay. You can see how they've depicted that. Hmm. It's not very accurate, but I mean, you know, who are we to judge? In the extremely well-researched book, The Keeper of Genesis, released in 1996, the authors uh, John Hancock and Rob Bavall, John Hancock. John Hancock. The old signature man. Oh, John. Uh, what do you think it's Graham Hancock? It's possibly Graham Hancock. Yeah. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> Presents strong evidence to support the theory that the Sphinx was not built in the image of Kafra. In the book, Hancock and Bavall even go so far as to employ the service of a forensic scientist who specialises in face recognition to compare the two faces. His comparison shows undeniable discrepancies between the two and also punches some more serious holes in the Sphinx's Kafra theory. The two authors also present a very solid case in regards to dating the entire complex by examining the work of John Anthony West. Rest in peace, man. He's causing trouble wherever he is. Uh, which raises serious geological questions about the entire Giza complex. In West's excellent book, The Serpent in the Sky, he also questions the alignments of the monuments, suggesting that these alignments were in no way incidental, but rather they held a very significant and easily confirmable astronomical implications. 
This is an issue that was also raised in Robert Bavale's book, The Orion Mystery. But in The Keeper of Genesis, and against the torrent of opposition from the academics, the authors also put forth another bold theory that not only is the face of the Sphinx not that of a Khafre, but based on overwhelming geological evidence, the Sphinx is in fact much older than even the Great Pyramid. So, I just checked. It's definitely Graham Hancock. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I just had to check because I was like, look, it is a last name. Maybe there's another Hancock out there. It could be. That was there yeah, was yeah. but there isn't. No, it, it was it Graham. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've got his got it right here. Yeah, cool. Uh thanks, Jamie. Appreciate that, mate. That's all right. I just thought maybe we could, you know, we could do that. We can, yeah, we can fact check. If, if whoever's not talking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can do some quick searches for sure. The date or not the date? That is the question. The work done by West and Shock and the claims made by Hancock and Breval and the Keeper of the Genesis at once produced a veritable storm of criticism from the academic community. The notion that someone who held no doctorate or degree would dare to present such an absurd theory infuriated them. They flatly proclaimed the authors to be wrong and refused to speculate any further on the possibility that the Sphinx was not Kafra. They bluntly dismissed the idea of the Sphinx being older than the Great Pyramid is ridiculous and I believe also banned the entire party from further access into the Giza complex to conduct any more investigations. That is true, they did. Uh, they kicked him out for a little while. It is an interesting thing that any investigative team that tries to present a different theory on the Giza complex to which that is put forth by the general academic community is subsequently banned from further access to the site by the Society of Egyptology. Pretty sure old Zawi was in charge back then, still is now sort of thing. Funny thing is, though, how hard would it have been just to get a grunt to go for you? Yeah, it's true. I mean, you can't be there, but if you've been kicked out, you just, oh, by the way, I've been been thinking of a theory. Just send, yeah, send, send Can it. Can you go and check this out for me? Yeah. Just compare just, this to this, take some photos, yeah, take some measurements. Back. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound likely that they feel very secure in their convictions and really don't want people messing around with the facts. Science is supposed to involve all conclusions that are reached through the rational investigation of all of the theories and all of the evidence, not conclusions arrived at through the blind assumption of one theory as fact. No theory should ever be placed in a position where it is no longer open for debate, especially one so loosely based on circumstantial evidence and pertaining to a side of such significance and that is still so full of mystery. But unfortunately, in blatant disregard for the true advancement of genuine scientific research, the Society of Egyptology is quite adamant about banning anyone with a new theory that doesn't quite fit their own. It seems that they are quite intent on keeping the real truth about the Giza complex very tightly under wraps indeed. It's very difficult to understand how this type of attitude and behaviour could be construed as an intelligent or scientific approach to solving the issue in any way and the reasons they may have for doing this will be discussed later. But for now, the relevant authorities simply say the debate is closed because we already know and we can prove who built them. This, of course, is a statement of either pure stupidity or blatant deception because we've already shown it is an assumption based on very thin circumstantial evidence. If the truth be known, there is a far greater amount of much more conclusive evidence to dispute, dispute not only the theory, but that actually proves that Khufu and Khafre were in fact not the builders. The problem that the authorities face with is this. If Khufu and Kafra did not build them, then who did? No one can show who it actually may have been. The authorities also refuse to consider that it may have been constructed long before 2500 BC 
because if it is, then history is presented with a rather large gap of time between the civilization that built the complex and the civilization has been attributed to. There's a large gap in history that cannot be readily explained without admitting our history is wrong and that an advanced civilization existed in antiquity. Well, that's what we reckon around here, Max. I love, it. I love how Max puts this stuff, eh? It's cool. Yeah. That it is something they wish to avoid at all cost. It is also a matter of some sensi- sensitivity for Egypt. At present, they are able to say, look what our ancestors did. They built the greatest wonder on earth. It is a matter of immense pride for them and understandable why they may not wish to concede that it is not strictly true that Egypt, in fact, inherited the complex from a civilization that wasn't actually theirs. But despite what academia sees, says about the Giza complex, overwhelming evidence exists to, to dispute the time frame we have been given for its construction. The Sphinx, the Sphinx is very heavily eroded, with horizontal grooves punctuated by deep vertical fissures. Egypt's top archaeologist, Dr. Sahi Awas, adamantly states this massive amount of erosion was caused by desert winds, which we now know. Like, isn't it interesting? You can see there's there's been somewhat involvement of ideas. Like reading this, it's like, how much has it moved forward in 20 years? Mm-hmm. Not a lot. Mm-mm. A bit. Like they can't really, no one really argues about the water erosion on the Sphinx anymore. No. Uh, you know, however, yeah. Because, because they got, they got experts in like the theory was from Egyptologists. Yeah. And that was all well and good until the geologists geologists and they're like, sand doesn't weather things like that. No, it doesn't. Yeah. I think I remember, I remember again, I'm having like, early UTC flashbacks and we spoke about the Sphinx and the fact that, you know, being Aussie blokes that have worked in the bush mm-hmm. quite a lot in our clay based soil, mm-hmm. we've seen that exact same thing. Accelerated yeah. process, obviously. However, yeah. you see a clay wall, it does that exact same thing that it looks like in the Sphinx. Exactly. The, and the wall of the yeah. Uh, enclosure. Yeah. The wall of the enclosure. Yeah. We've seen that exact thing caused by rain in clay. It yeah. almost looks exactly the same with exactly. the different layers the deep, of clay. The deep fissures, the, yeah. the horizontal uh, striations. Yeah. 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 Like that, that to me, the horizontal is where water's lapped. Like yeah. it's been, there's been water there. Yeah, absolutely. Laps there. And then the vertical ones is where it runs down. Mm-hmm. So it's pouring in through those. Yeah. Yeah, and we've seen it over and over again. Yeah, exactly. That's what you see in the in the road cuts and stuff like yeah, that. Absolutely. Uh, da, 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 where are we? Uh, the sinks is very oh yeah yeah desert winds. Now, quite frankly, wind erosion is an extraordinary, strange claim to make, just in considering the history of the monument. The statue was actually buried in the sand for most of its life. It was uncovered sometime between fourteen seventeen and fourteen twenty five BC by King Tutmos the Fourth but was soon covered again by the desert sands. It was still buried up to its neck when Napoleon arrived in 1798. Yeah, that's what I, yeah, there's, there's, there's an early photo of it buried, I think. Yeah. A very early, like, photo uh, of it buried. Uh, well, there you go. There it is there. Ta-da. Ta-da. Uh, remained so until it was partially cleared again in 1817 and then still more in 1858 and 1885, but it was not fully exposed until 1926. So there really wasn't a great deal of time for all this wind erosion to have occurred. Yeah, exactly. The wind in the desert, the wind blows the sand into the hole and that, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but even with it being covered for so long, according to the estimate, estimates based on the figures Dr. Hawass has provided for the rate of this erosion, if it were indeed a fact, then the Sphinx should have been all but gone by now. 
or wafer thin at the very best. There is also the disturbing fact that the deep vertical fissures are quite clearly the result of water erosion caused by prolonged exposure to participation. It was pissing down. That's what was going on. Naturally, any of these telltale fissures that appear on the actual monument are hardly covered by new restoration work that is being carried out. But even with this new work, there can be no doubt whatsoever that the erosion seen on the monument is in fact caused by water. It's more, yes, on the monument, yes, but it's the walls that are the more... Yeah. That's, you can't argue with that. No. Hancock and Baval sum it up nicely in The Keeper of the Genesis. So we're doing a podcast, reading a book, about to read an excerpt from a book. How many dimensions... Inception. Are we, yeah, how many dimensions are we existing in now? The weathering patterns, which have been studied by geologists from Boston University, have been identified as having been caused by prolonged exposure to heavy rains. In 2500 BC, when Egyptologists presumed that the Sphinx was built, Egypt was as bone dry as it is today. Between 15,000 and 7,000 BC, however, the science of paleoclimatology indicates that Egypt several times passed through periods of a wet climate, which would have been caused by weathering patterns, which would have caused weathering patterns such as, such as these. The trench surrounding the Great Sphinx, which was created at the same time the Sphinx was carved, is very clearly indicates the rolling scalloped coves and very deep vertical fissures, fissures of characteristic of participation-induced weathering in limestone. The sciences of geology and paleoclimatology alone, however, can only demonstrate that the Sphinx and its enclosure are much older than previously thought. Archaeoastronomical analysis provides far more accurate tool for dating the Sphinx. Just for the record, we've got an archaeoastronomy podcast coming up. Uh, Excuse me? Yeah, yeah. Dan Damus is coming back. Ah, and the he's doing, Damus. And he's doing archaeoastronomy. Looking forward Legend. to that. Legend. Looking forward to that. Ah, that'll be excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the work done by West and Shock clearly demonstrates beyond any doubt that the massive amount of erosion visible on the Sphinx was indeed caused by water. The somewhat controversial issue of the Sphinx bearing signs of water erosion was actually first raised by French Egyptologist Maine Schwala de Lubzik, whose theory was considered... Lubiz. Lubiz. Is that um, an E or a C? It's a C. Is it? Too much... Contentious at the time. It was also hurriedly dismissed. And remember, it's John Anthony West. He was studying Schwala, which led him to Egypt, which led him to Robert Schock. And the story goes that he handed Robert Shock just a picture of the wall hmm. and said, what caused this? And then he said, and then he goes, yeah, that's definitely water erosion. Where did it come from? And then handed him a larger photo that had the Sphinx and he freaked out. Yeah. That was the story. We need that sound effect too. Uh, <laughs> you got it right here, buddy. Yeah, yeah. You just point the finger. And <laughs> uh, the academic... The academic community chooses to completely disregard this indisputable evidence of water erosion because it poses an enormous problem for them. It's universally agreed that Egypt has been subject to severe flooding in the past, but geological studies of the area show that the last time there are any rains and floods in Egypt of a magnitude to cause the type of erosion that can be found on the Sphinx was between seven and 15,000 years ago, and that just doesn't help their cause at all because it actually proves their theory to be irrefutably erroneous. I like that. I want to find a way to use that. You are irrefutably erroneous, your thought, Pat. <laughs> Jeez, it's <laughs> a mouthful. Isn't it? Isn't it? There's just a couple of pictures of you know, them uncovering the 
Sphinx. Yeah. Um, Just Caffrey's Pyramid and uh, Caffrey's Sphinx. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, hey. Sorry about that. Now, just think about all that for a moment. These types of standard geological tests are used to date the last flood in the area and hundreds of other sites around the world, and the results are accepted. Yet when, the exact same t- when exactly the same tests are used and they irrefutably prove the erosion of the Sphinx and its closure was very clearly created by water, the results are dismissed and the entire debate on the issue is not mentioned to the public. Did you see that? In the blink of an eye and a quick bit of scientific sleight of hand. <laughs> bit of scientific sleight of hand. Don't know when, we don't know anything about that, mate. No, we don't see that often. No, that's right. <laughs> One set of standard geological tests is to be accepted while another set of identical tests is to be disregarded. Simply because it's not an issue when the last torrential rains occurred in Egypt, but it is an issue to say the Sphinx may have been there at the time because if it was there, it would be proved them wrong. So they simply disallow the test. If someone does it behind their back, well, then the test is disregarded. And if they complain, it's back to the doctorate waving and personal attacks as a last line of defense. And let's face it, folks, it's really the only defense they have. Which, I mean, you know, we saw as late, I can't remember, it was a few years ago now, but when Graham tried to debate Zahi was, and it literally lasted 45 seconds before he walked out, Zahi started cursing him and walked out. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like it's... Uh, oh, man, they're an open book. They yeah. love to chat about new theories. Mm. Where are we? Where are we at on Mate, the rocker the clock, rock right? clock is saying three, two, one. All right. Okay. There you go. There you go. That was amazing timing, my friend. Very good. Very you good. Uh, have a very good idea of what an hour is. Mm. Mm. Well, the fact that there's a space there, I think, um, and that's it is a long chapter. It is a long chapter. So we're halfway through. We, we're going to yeah, we're going back to the erosion. There's many, many pages to go yet. So that's awesome. Um, just a little. And the thing is, is that uh, you know, where do where do we start with the Sphinx? I mean, I, I think he's going to go on to say that it lines up to Leo, which is twenty six thousand years ago or something like well, that. That's where he was going with the astro astronomical archaeoastronomy astronomy like, yada yada. Yeah. That's what I reckon anyway. Yeah, we'll see. Seems to be the other sort of course of thought. Hmm. Well, Egypt's always fun, man. It's always yeah, fun well, to Egypt's go back. Great, you know? Egypt's amazing, and uh, and it's good to read a well put together sort of um, group of information. Yes. You know yes. what I mean? It's it's just yeah. Again, I'm 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 hearing some details I didn't know. Detail on some more details I did know. You I know, think I um, think it's in the small details because mm. they're easy to forget. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So yeah, reading some fresh fresh scripture mm. on the topic is always fun. Mm. But yeah, and yeah. and the fact that it was it's. I guess you could call it fairly recent. Yes. In terms of it's mentioning those people who are prominent now. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's there. That's there. That was still at it 20 years ago. That's it. You know, that's, that's how long it. these they guys still, have been. They were in the trenches. Yeah. Well, mate, uh, do you want to do a worry wisdom? Since we're going old school. I, th- I don't why know. Not, I, I just, I just. Busted out. Yeah. Just thought, why not? I don't know. Something, Let's something told me. Well, you know, pyramids come from a long way back in, in the UTC history. Mm. Warrior wisdom comes from a long way back. Mm. And can I just say, man, Bodie Sanders 
one of the best guests you've ever you've ever had on here. I know it was an so amazing awesome. episode. So and, if you, awesome. and if people haven't listened to it yet, take some time out out of your day, mm. scroll back to that one because uh, I really enjoyed it. You yeah. both really just you both hit it on the head, you mm. know, in terms of podcast quality. I think it's great. Mm. And look, Bodie is coming back. We just got to uh, we've got to figure out a, a new time uh, yeah. to to sit back down again. And yeah, I can't remember the topic, but stay tuned for that one. Let's see what's Bodie or the Warrior Wisdom book got for us tonight. Pretty crazy that we actually, we've already read this one. It's come up a repeat. Shit, you've got a good memory if you can remember which one you've read. I can. That's actually, it's reflect on this. Efforts and enemies, and I messed that up last time too. Reflect on this. Efforts and enemies, if left unfinished, can both ravage you like an unextinguished fire. That was, we had that last time. And I think that basically you've just got to keep going and don't burn the candle at both ends. I'm going to go again. I'm going to go, go again. again. And don't pull the book open too hard, wide. We, I don't want too many repetitive anomalies. Mm. By associating with good and evil people, a man acquires the virtues and vices which they possess. Even as the wind blowing over different places takes along good and bad odors. That's interesting. Trust in today's friends as if they might be tomorrow's enemies. That's a bit dark. It's a bit nihilistic. However, I think the, uh, you know, when dealing with, what, what do we just, actually it is applicable. Because we were just talking about Zahi Was and Graham Hancock and Paval in dealing with good and evil men. Mm. You know, what smells? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Interesting. No, definitely. Interesting. Well, mate, uh, another one done. These are really cool. Uh, I'm enjoying doing these. Beautiful. So what was that? That was halfway through Chapter 4 Yeah. on Egypt. So... Mm. Next time we come back, it'll be the second, in, second half of Egypt. Yeah, second half of Egypt. We'll jump back in and I uh, hope you're well. Be kind, be cool, stay safe. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. Peace. Shut